Good morning and welcome to the New Media Show. My name is Todd Cochran. Very early here in Honolulu and a relatively early in Seattle. Good morning, Rob. How are you? Doing great, Todd. It is like yeah, we're right on the cusp of uh, a change to what daylight savings time. So oh, that's well, coming that, up tomorrow. Is, here, that's true. So is that going to change? Is here? Do I have to? Oh, guess what? I get to sleep in an hour starting Pretty next awesome. week. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. It'll only be two hours difference. Uh, so that's cool. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm going to experience uh, daylight savings time at uh, thirty five thousand feet. <laughs> oh, boy, you're doing a lot of traveling and flying these days. Yeah, my body doesn't know if I'm coming or going, but uh, Sunday, I would imagine. Yeah, my office looks like it too. But uh, yeah, Sunday <laughs> night I I fly out to Denver. So if anybody is uh, in the listening audience that lives in the Denver area. Uh, we're already meeting a few podcasters on Tuesday. Uh, going to go out for dinner. And we're going to not watch the election. So uh, um, <laughs> you're not going to watch the election. <laughs> we're going to bail on that one, huh? Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be. Yeah, well, never mind. But uh, anyway, so if you're in the Denver area, uh, I'm going to be in first time in Denver. Uh, really, I I drove through Denver, but. I'm going to be in Centennial. That's where I'm staying as a hotel. There's a tech park there. So I'm going to be uh, in that area. So uh, it should, uh, should be fun. But anyway, uh, I'll let you guys, uh, anybody's in the audience is in the Denver area and you want to come hang out, let me know. It doesn't have to be Tuesday, but that's kind of the planned day. Because Monday and Thursday, well, there will be shows and I fly out Friday morning. But um, how about you, Rob? You're getting ready to get go to Italy here soon, yeah? Yeah, at the end of the month on the... 26th of the month, I, I fly out for a team retreat in Italy, and um, so it should be interesting. I'm, I'm hoping that there's no earthquake. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going you're gonna to have Turkey Day, you're going to have Black Friday, then you're leaving Saturday. So you're a brave man to allow, you know, you're going to go out and your wife's going to have a full a shopping, shopping weekend ahead of her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, yeah. Well, well, yeah, it's it's amazing. We're, we're totally into the winter cycle here. I know it doesn't, doesn't make a Im- huge impact on where you live, but, um, it's a it, big change it, here. It does when I have to pack cause I have to remember, Oh, I need to take a coat. Oh so, yes. Yeah. Yes. But you know, it's, can you believe it's November already? It's just like, wh- I know it's yeah. It's like, Oh, well, I, I got like 10 things I haven't gotten done yet this year. So anyway, yeah. everyone, well, and s- and CES is coming up real soon, and yeah, and I know the the um, Podfest Orlando is coming up soon too in yeah. February. So things are coming around a lot faster than I think we we realize. So. Yeah, it's it's moving quick. Yeah, and and I haven't really done any planning for CES. Yet. Well, I've done some, but not a lot. But uh, it's probably not going to take as much planning for you. Yeah, right? it's probably not. The emails have already started, but uh, I'm ignoring them. Hey, just as a side note, uh, a little self-promotion here. Today at 2 p.m. Eastern, Mike Dell is going to be having a uh, a webinar. So if you're a PowerPress newbie and you want to get deep into the weeds in PowerPress, Mike's going to be doing a webinar today at 2 p.m. Eastern. You can find a link to that webinar at Geek News on Twitter if you want to check that out. And uh, I think he's got like 30 people signed up, so it should be a pretty big webinar, but we'll see how many show up. Well, and also the DC PodFest is uh, going on today uh, back in Washington, D.C. This is the 
the final day for the event. And you can actually listen to some of that. Rob Walsh was back there and gave a gave a presentations about uh, de debunking a lot of the podcast myths out there. And it's actually available on on a live stream or actually it's on on, on demand um, just by going on the website. Spreaker is actually live streaming a lot of the event this year. So um, so if you wanted to hear Rob talk about <laughs> all the podcast myths out there go <laughs> go go check out that it's always an entertaining talk that he gives about that yeah and he, and he that's his typical stump speech when he goes to an event he likes giving that one a lot yeah well i think he has so much fun with it i think he <laughs> <laughs> i i saw him i saw him about throw someone out of a group room the other day talking about new and noteworthy you know that that uh topic poked its head up again and and he must have a search term set for new and noteworthy because he was in like 30 seconds later and chopped the guy's head off. So, um, <laughs> he probably does. Yeah. So I should invite him to come on, come on this show. And between the three of us, we could have a really, a, a real curmudgeon fest. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, yeah. And we, we have to be careful, Rob, that we don't become curmudgeons. It's not necessarily. I think we already are. <laughs> hey, so um, this week was, um, and I have to be, I don't want to betray any confidences at all, but I had a client that we were working with this week that uh, is, you know, ha- having some, um, I guess for a better word, having some thoughts about their podcast feed. And uh, we consulted with them and, and talked with them and, um, you know, it, there's a lot of services out there today that are saying, if you move here, you shall move your podcast feed over to us. And, uh, um, and, you know, I think we talked them off the edge, but, uh, um, you know, I continue to be a big purveyor right now. And, and, and this is nothing new for 12 years. I have, you know, you know, really pounded this bandwagon that, uh, you know, your feeds a very, very important intellectual property. And, you should do your best to try to maintain it on your dot com if you know if that's the you know if, that, if that's what you uh, if, where you're hosting your website where you have your website. Uh, yeah. But uh, anyway, well, just I mean, goes. Todd, to... It's it's really all about just being somewhere where you know that you're really in control of that. And I mean, a lot of hosting platforms um, don't really give you all the controls that you need. No, no, um, no to to transfer and do redirects and things like that and i think the majority of folks do yeah you I know would say so too yeah but there's a few still out there that don't and um you know and actually you know, one of those particular companies came up this week with the uh, folks that we migrated off we just told them sorry you you you're you know you can't do they or they won't and um they found out the hard way so yeah, and Todd, I also heard you talk about on on Facebook too about a company that was using the same file name yeah. uh, across all uh, their shows. I, I uh, thought that was odd. So, and, and you just have to kind of look around. I'm not going to say the company's name, but they we we um, had a customer that came in, wanted to be migrated, and when the the system migrated him just fine, moved. Uh, you know, it was not very many files, maybe 40. And um, so only 40 episodes. So they were early in their podcast, you know, uh, creation. But when we looked in the uh, system, it was one file. And it, we're like, Where, where's the other 46? 
Well, the way our system's uh, set up is we allow people to um, overwrite, essentially, their media file name and not count against their quota. So if you, if, you know, if you record an episode three weeks ago and you put an ad in it and now you want to replace that ad with uh, another one and you want to replace that file, so long as that file doesn't change in size dramatically, we let you re-upload it. Well, in this instance, the... Um, this, the situation was we said, oh, replacement file, replacement file, <laughs> replacement file, because it was all named like podcast show dot mp3. It was it was I mean, they were all named exactly the same thing. And um, so and, and so we said, that's weird. And we went and started looking at some of their other customers. So essentially, this company has every show on its platform using the same exact audio file name for each and every episode so todd i didn't actually look at this but are they um doing doing a unique id number in in a like a uh slash area just prior to that address so they can create a unique reference point in their system they have a it looks to me like they have a each file has its own directory or something to that effect which is really You know, that's how okay. they, you know, it's a, their company name dot show dot, I mean, slash, uh, you know, episode one slash podcast dot mp3 slash episode okay. two. You know, so, you know, they really, uh, you know, that's going to be from that number two. We already know that doesn't scale. <laughs> you know, yeah, well, it's true. You can't have an unlimited amount of shows under that situation. But, um, and I think I believe that the company we're referring to uh, does a lot of dynamic ad insertion. Yes, they do. So um, they probably are doing that for that reason. I'm sure. Well, none of the other dynamic inserters are doing that. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to do don't that. Don't have to, like, right? I could see an engineer architecting it to right. be easier that way. Yeah, well, it saves them like ten lines of code. So. Yep. <laughs> exactly. So we had to go in and um, write. Uh, you know, we just basically had to go in and write, and we had to write like 10 lines of code to account for it. And we essentially renamed the files. It's really dumb to have those files all named the same thing. Uh, it's from an SEO standpoint, from it's, you know, it's just, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Some players, some older players will choke on that. Um, yeah. Yeah, because. I, yeah, it sounds like it's just kind of lazy programming somewhat. Um, that's what it sounds like to me. And somebody that doesn't really understand the podcasting space and how things should work. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and so we see stuff going on all the time because companies don't like it when we come in and just, you know, when, when people move, we've been our, our, uh, we've been blocked before we've had our IPs blocked. So we've had to use proxy servers to be able to migrate people. I'm just like, really, if the customer's leaving you, they're leaving. We have people leave. You know, it's not like we don't lose people. Every company loses people from time to time. People's needs change, you know, and you don't like to see them go, but you you don't try to hold them back when they go, you know. So um, it's just the scheme of things. But, yeah, I had one of the companies try to actually block us from (laughs) trying to move someone. Well, that didn't work very long. Todd, did you hear or see this article that's come out? And I've heard um, Jordan 
Harbinger, I, I can never pronounce his last name, um, uh, the founder and host of the Art of Charm podcast. I know Jordan's been on this show. Yeah, he has. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. He actually has been out there saying that, uh, please, please, for the love of God, do not start a podcast. Did you see this article? I, I did. And I, I took umbrage to it. Yeah. I mean, I can see his point, but <laughs> there's a big butt behind this. <laughs> okay. So you're, you're telling people don't start a podcast. Why? You know, it's, everyone has a voice. Everyone should be allowed to have a voice. Yeah. Not even allowed. It's a right. Yeah. You um, know. That's right. And It's and, a level playing field. It's an open, open uh, marketplace. You and, can, anybody and, can do it. I think what, what he was talking about is, is mainly if you're going to start a podcast, put some thought into right. it. Right. And make it unique. Make it interesting. Do your best work with it, not just make it a copycat of yeah. a million other shows. But right? it's hard. It's hard because there's, you know, there's a, uh, you know, uh, twenty six thousand religious shows. There's a, uh, you know, twenty two thousand sports shows. You know, it's very, very difficult to have a show that is purely unique. But you know, every, the way you know, the way I look at tech podcasts. You know, when we started Tech Podcast, we were worried that, you know, there was four or five of us that were doing new shows. And we're like, mm -hmm. oh, we're going to, this is going to be a problem, you know. And, you know, so really it it wasn't because in the end there was like 20 new shows, uh, you know, um, 15 review shows. And there was just this huge mix of, and there still is today. And there's a little something there for everything. But what we found, and, and here's the, you know, really the the delta. And this is where people creating new shows should really look at is if you're not networking with someone, if you're not networking, you know, you, something motivated you to do a show. And if it was a show that motivated you to do a show, then, you know, do your best to, you know, if you know, cross promote that show that you liked a lot in your own show and then hopefully, you know, let them know that you did and they can cross promote back. I never asked someone to promote my show. I always promoted someone's show then told them, um, that I promoted their show and hopefully they promoted it back. So, yeah. um, so I'm not sure what the answer is to, to Jordan's comments here, um, to tell people other than, um, I guess he's just trying to, trying to encourage people to make as good a content as they can. And if they don't feel like that they can, um, they don't necessarily have to do it. Right? Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. That's kind of a, it, it comes across a little, it's a little bit of a negative message. Yeah, me too. And I don't know that people that we want to be putting that out there is stop trying. If you, you know, if you think you're not going to be good at this, I think it's, it's a little bit of an elitist approach and mm -hmm. I'm not sure that that actually is constructive. You know, and, um, and, 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 you know, I keep, and, and I think, I point I've hammered and you have too, Rob, this hammered this point home. It's not the the sprint, it's the marathon with podcasting. And you yeah, know, and you're gonna get better at doing it. And, and it's gonna you know. take a couple of years. You know, you yeah. this is not you know, sure there's gonna be shows that have instant success. But yeah. for the average person starting a show, they they gotta they gotta hammer. You know, I look at my God, listen to my episode number, you know, three, four, five, ten. Oh wow. You know, it's, yeah. you don't even find your battle rhythm until you 
hit like episode 50. You know, you and I have been doing this show long enough. We don't even talk about this show. You just show up and we go. You know, we, yeah. we, we've been doing this show long enough. We, we, we've got a battle rhythm and we know what, you know, how it, uh, how it rolls. Is it perfectly, it's perfectly uh, set up and planned? No, it's not. You know, like this morning, we're going to have a guest come in here in about, hopefully about 11 minutes. And we're going to talk about uh, low power FM, which mm-hmm. is an interesting topic for, you know, anyone that's out there doing a podcast and, and we're going to find out what's going on in that space. So, um, you know, we haven't pre-planned questions or anything with the guests that's coming on. So I, I really think that doing a podcast today, you know, I do agree that you should plan a little bit and you should say, okay, does, is my, can I do two years worth of content on the topic I have picked? Yeah. It's a good question to ask yourself. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have that issue too even the show that i do the speaker live show being focused specifically on podcasting i know you talked to like a daniel j lewis or a dave jackson and uh, they've been doing regular shows on podcasting for a very long time and and i'm sure they'll probably have a different answer to this as well that you just kind of have to be creative you have to be thoughtful about you know what people are interested in out there in, in a very niche narrow topic like podcasting talking about podcasting like on this show you kind of have to be open to um, thinking about the psychology of podcasting and thinking about different ways of looking at it that can help be helpful to people as they do a show, uh, just based on our own experience. And I know Todd, that's kind of what that's kind of what we approach this show is that it, it comes from you know ten, twelve, fifteen years of doing this kind of stuff and pointing out different things that are going on in the space or or different um, individuals that are bringing different thoughts and trying to pull them apart and and draw some clarity to them. And that's that's really the purpose of this show. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's a difficult thing. It's not easy to do. And I, and I think that um, the more time you do it, the more chances that, that, that you get is to in refining that process. And I do st- still keep coming up with uh, speaker live shows every week. You know, each each show is um, probably not as not always the the best or better than the last one. Um, but I think I have developed a rhythm over time, and I've kind of kind of learned. Um, you know, even a longtime podcaster like you and I, you know, I'm sure you had some struggles doing your. Um, your legends of podcasting show that you just started too, and that, that you probably went through a similar process. Is that, is that accurate or was that really smooth for you? Well, it was smooth in, in that I'm talking to people right now that I know today I'm talking to someone that I'm not, don't have a lot of history with. And yeah. my biggest challenge with legends of podcasting is booking. I've never had to book people before and <laughs> it sucks, you know, trying to get people on. So uh, that's my challenge with legends of podcasting. But, and then I think shows too are such that I, I was talking to someone that is, uh, that listens to this show religiously. And I say, what, you know, are, are we boring you? And, oh, no, 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 no. I said, sometimes you, the individual said, sometimes you guys may get off on a little tangent, but, you know, invariably somewhere during the show, there'll be like this ding moment where, you know, I, I tell everyone, you need to listen to uh, 22 minutes and 33 seconds. You need to listen to, 
you know, the five minutes following that. So, you know, it, it, I go, oh, and it's true because sometimes you and I will chit chat about stuff and then we'll get on a topic and we'll get down in the weeds deep and there'll be uh, something there that is really pertinent. And it may, it may took us 22 minutes to get there, but um, it's a story. Yeah. And and you can't always hit a home run on a show. You can't. Uh, And there are days I get done doing my tech show and I'm like, man, that one sucked. But guess what? It's got to go out or the news was thin and you're like, man, what do I really, you know, what, what's my lead off? What's my, where's my rant uh, topic, you know, soapbox topic. There's it, it, just, uh, sometimes it's tough because it, I'm dependent upon the news cycle. But yep. this show too kind of as well. We're, we're, you know, we're watching what's going on in space, seeing people making announcements. Um, Gimlet just made one the other day that um, their newest show that they launched and I don't even know the name of it did 300,000 listens like off the get go. And I, and someone in Google plus was questioning that, is that even possible? And, and the old measurement thing came up again. And, but if you look at their, their mode operandi over there, they are like, you, you, you cross promote. There is no, no such thing as not, that is Mando. Every show over there promotes two or three other shows every mm-hmm. single episode um and that's smart so it, go, it goes again yeah. back to the network thing thing but but you know i think that there's there's different types of networks and i know that this is going to take us down a little bit of a tangent here but um um some networks can cross promote others uh struggle at it i mean if you're a, a network of shows that are solely owned by the network and produced by the network um i think doing cross promotion is pretty simple and easy to do, but if you're um, if you're a kind of a loosely aligned podcast network, which a you know a fair amount of the networks out there are, it's harder to do that because podcasters are much more competitive um, with, with each other. And I know Todd, you've put forth a lot of effort um, over the years to to do cross promotion type activities with podcasters and it hasn't always worked out very well, has it? <laughs> no. And, and actually we, we ran uh, trucker Tom let us use a uh, domain for many years. And I think it's still, I think he still owes it. It's was called podcast promos. It was a site dedicated to cross promotion and getting people to cross promote shows because I understood the value of it. You know, there in the, er, in the very, very early days, um, when shows were, when we were starting to see not just, you know, we're, well, literally hundreds of shows coming on a week or maybe a thousand shows. Cause in the early days, man, it, it was, I mean, shows just exploded and you, and it's probably, it's, you know, it's similar to today's kind of trajectory on new shows coming online. If, if you're not, uh, if you're not cross promoting, you're not, you're, you're not going to get found. Um, and what we found, at least over at Tech Podcasts, was that, sure, we may lose a listener here or there, but oftentimes people would listen to both shows. So we, it was a win-win, not a win-loss. Um, and sometimes people found a show that better suited them and vice versa. So the cross-promotion stuff, I, I, people don't do it these days. They should. They should do more of it. Yeah, I agree. It's It's the power of being a in a closely aligned network, um, you know, you look at 
you know, I hate to say, but like a podcast one, I mean, yeah. that's like a religious thing that they, they do down there yep. as well. Um, all the shows, uh, at various times get cross promoted on other shows and on radio shows. And, and it's all about, it's really all about just getting the word out and yep. inspiring some, some word of mouth marketing. Cause let's, let's just say it like it is. I mean, word of mouth marketing is the key to this, oh, this space. Absolutely. And I, you know, I've been on a kick right now, um, with my Geek New Center show, asking my listeners to do a specific function to try to help me with Google. I've been asking them if you will please use this link when you are tweeting the show or talking about uh, you know things that are going on, specifically my sponsor. Yeah. Um. You know, I'm trying to use the crowd. To uh, influence, uh, you know, some page rank, and uh, do it uh, through social media, and you know, and, and not make it look spammy, and yeah. that, um, you know, and, and doing that kind of stuff is you know, getting the audience engaged to do that. But I, I don't know. I just went totally left field there. But um, <laughs> yeah, the whole promotion thing is is huge, and not only promoting, but also linking to a show from your show. Not just talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. So has there been any kind of uh, more fallout or feedback on the whole This American Life um, sample player thing that came out? Have you heard anything more on that? I've heard nothing about it. I did hear about a new, um, I don't know if it's the same tool. Maybe it is otranscribe.com. Oh. Um, and no, I don't want to be subscribed to your mailing list. Yeah, I did actually hear Rob Rob Walsh on the feed kind of go off on those guys, kind of like what we did too. Oh. <laughs> the the whole thing about it's it's um, that that the that the This American Life folks were claiming it as something that was revolutionary in the podcasting space and. <laughs> Well, and I, I, this, you know, this is a first and it's all open source <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. And well, I, just, I appreciate yeah. they made it open source, you know. Yeah. But as you could tell, it really doesn't perform very well. Um, it's really slow. Well, it's just like another revolutionary thing that Omni announced. And boy, they're big. They're, they're, they love to write a bullshit headline. They are revolutionary and create them custom sample RSS feeds. In other words, oh, this, yeah. this is an that. RSS yeah. feed that has multiple shows in it. I'm thinking to myself, I think wow. I, I think I've got a trademark on a product called MyCast that um, allows you to have a custom RSS feed with a multiple shows in it. Since what was that about ten years ago? Hmm. Okay, so it's not. Spreaker has had that in every account that's been given since uh, for the last like the last five years. Right. So this is nothing revolutionary. So, and they're they're promoting it as a way to get a sample of a show. So yeah. it, okay, so a sample means give me just five minutes of the show, <laughs> not the whole show. So you know, I'm just you know, in in and reporters are gullible. I mean, they are yeah. they're like, uh, did you know that's like not new? 
Yeah. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, that's been around a while. Uh, matter of yeah, fact. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> hey, um, Todd, uh, Sabrina sent a contact request. I just got an email about it, so we might want to accept that and, and, and see if we can pull Sabrina in. So we have a guest coming on, and her name is Sabrina Roach, and she's with a company called Brown Paper Tickets uh, up here in Seattle, and she's been heavily involved in the low-power FM community and trying to um, drive the movement uh, in that space of uh, thousands of low-power FM stations starting up all over the country. And she's going to come in here and talk a little bit about um, how those low-power FM stations are starting to move more towards podcasting. And what's really interesting about this is um, that there uh, is going to be a movement towards more localized content coming out of these stations, since that's kind of their their mandate with the FCC, is that they they have to produce um, local content content. and I, I believe a lot of these stations are going to want to put that out as podcasts. Um, I mean, a lot of them are music stations as well. But uh, so she's going to be joining us pretty quickly here from she, Seattle. She so. is approved and can come in at any time. Okay. Sabrina, come on in. <laughs> Hi there. How you doing? Hi, Sabrina. Hi. Thank you for coming coming on board and, and, and joining us to talk about uh, Low Power FM stuff. It's, uh, Thanks for having We're me. both really, really curious about that, and I think we, we definitely want to share it with our podcaster community and kind of get, get a connection going between Low Power FM and podcasting more. Thank you so much. The podcasting world um, that you're part of, uh, that I've seen from, from watching your show, uh, is just not something I'm very familiar with. And I don't know many folks in the grassroots uh, low-power FM movement who who do know a lot about it. Okay. So I'm very well, excited you know. to learn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's let's start from ground zero here, right? And, yeah. And, yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the low-power FM community and what's been going on there and how big it is and what you see happening uh, around, I mean, a lot of those stations are live streaming, I, I believe, and, and plus they're they're on terrestrial as well. But if you could give us kind of kind of like a landscape view of what's happening in that space. Sure. Um, roughly, well, almost uh, almost three thousand groups, so like two thousand eight hundred nonprofits um, applied for these licenses in twenty thirteen, and. Okay. Uh, at this point, um, let's see, about 750 are on the air, um, and uh, there, there's a potential for there to be roughly 1,500 of them around the country. And uh, when I say nonprofit, that's that's a mix, um, ranging from schools, uh, tribal governments, uh, faith-based organizations. Uh, and arts nonprofits and um, uh, even farm worker unions. Mm-hmm. So what? What I guess going back a little bit further. So I think a lot of people don't even know what low power FM is. What how it's uh, allowed? Uh, what are the rules? Do you know that type of information or how that? Well, actually- sure. That's 
that's a big bucket of information. Yeah, I know it is. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's tease out parts of it. Uh, so from a technical standpoint, you can imagine um, Lopar FM to be like legalized pirate radio. Awesome. So um, getting more into the nitty gritty, uh, they broadcast at 100 watts. And that can go three to ten miles, depending on your topography. Okay. I need I need to have that uh, type of a power out of my house here. I could reach all of Honolulu. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that'd be awesome. Yeah. So then, so go ahead. Oh, go. Uh, yeah, I was just gonna. So, what does it usually take a, a nonprofit uh, or or a group to get a low power FM um, station going? What's involved? What's involved? Uh, Gosh, uh, you know, building a nonprofit from the ground up if uh, you weren't part of another organization initially. Um, so that's that organizational development component is huge. Um, and then uh, when it comes to the technical aspects, um, it can take, well, let's see. I asked some engineers put to, to put together an equipment list and come up with some just some rough estimates on what it would cost for a group to get on the air. And that's roughly $60,000 wow. uh, when you're looking at your antenna and transmitter and then the studio equipment. Um, but these groups, um, when it comes to the bureaucratic standpoint, um, they applied in 2013. And once they were awarded what's called a construction permit by the Federal Communications Commission, they then had um, 18 months to build to prove to the FCC that they could get on the air. And then these groups are eligible for an additional 18-month um, extension. So essentially three years for a group to pull together $60,000 uh, to get on the air. Uh, that would be like a really rough sketch of what that could look like. Hmm. And, you know, the, if you look at a lot of markets today here in Honolulu, I mean, they're stacked on top of one another from an FM standpoint. So, you know, where are they, where are they dropping these, uh, these low power FM stations on the dial? Are they, is it all over the map or where, mm -hmm. where they, where do they drop them at? Sure. Um, well, in the early 2000s, there uh, was a wave of um, an application window for groups to get on the air in more rural areas. Um, and then uh, the Local Community Radio Act took roughly a, a decade for media justice act ad activists to, to push through Congress and uh, President Obama signed it into law in 2011. So then there were negotiations with the FCC to get um, to basically shoehorn these frequencies in between established FM dials in urban areas. Um, so uh, this filing window made it possible for stations to get what's called a second adjacent waiver. Um, and without diving too deep into the radio dial, Basically, in cities like Seattle, we had eight places on the dial, roughly, where you could shoehorn in these frequencies. That's cool. And so it takes some engineering, um, but there are a bunch of engineers who've helped make it work. And some corporate broadcasters uh, did challenge these applicants. Uh, of course. But, you know, it just takes good, good engineering. So does the, do the groups that are applying for these low-power FM licenses, do they have to be nonprofit, or can they be for-profit businesses? 
No, they have to be nonprofit organizations. But um, they can sell underwriting. Their business model is a lot like a public radio station, like a full-power NPR member station or a full-power community radio station. Um, But there is a slight difference when it comes to that business model because instead of a numbers sell on underwriting, you would probably go with like the halo effect. Um, of being associated with a community-based organization. So some of these groups I think of like neighborhood arts and culture organizations that just happen to also have the ability to be useful in an emergency situation. Um, and, you know, their facilities are just different from most arts nonprofits. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, I... Do you they, know, go ahead, oh, Rob. Yeah, I was just... Um, do the stations have to lower their power at night or anything like that? Is there any, can they be broadcasting 24 seven or is there like a turnoff time period? Yeah. 24 seven. 24 seven. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if you, if you look at this, Rob, you know, I think the, the technical, you know, if you have the place to put it, the technical part is pretty straightforward, but the, yeah. You know, for me, at least, I would think that the nonprofit stuff is going to be the biggest pain in the butt because it takes forever to get any organization a nonprofit status. How long is it? Are you seeing huge delays in that or? Well, really, the biggest pain uh, seems to be uh, city building permits. Oh. Uh, so here in Seattle, we're experiencing tremendous growth. So um, because there are so many entities applying for building permits, uh, it takes like 10 weeks to get a certain kind of meeting. And then you get a little, you make a little bit of progress and then that <laughs> goes through another 10 week process. Um, and then those fees are quite expensive. So we've been working with city government here to lower those barriers. Uh, but, but that seems to be one of the trickiest parts. And then some cities don't have that issue. One of the low power funds I'm working with here, um, uh, license, they'll be licensed in SeaTac, Washington, where our airport is. The SeaTac government wants to put the antenna on their city hall um, for this nonprofit group. So they're waiving all, all permits. So it really uh, doesn't take... Uh... And because it's low power, it's not like you need a tower. You, you don't need, you know, this thing doesn't have to be 500 feet off the ground. Right. It's more like a, a six-foot stick on top of a building. So right. there is some visual remediation, um, and it, it's appropriate for it to go through a review process uh, just to make sure the neighbors are happy and everyone's right. safe and sound. i got to figure out how I can run one out of the house here, Rob. That would be perfect. <laughs> Don't know, don't know if my homeowners association would like it, but you know, why not? Yeah. And don't, yeah. don't put it above your kid's bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it yeah. should be in a, in a, in a, in an area that's zoned appropriately. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's, let's move on from the, the kind of the terrestrial side a little bit, Todd, unless you have sure. more, more questions. No, no, it'd no. be great to, to talk a little bit about the, the digital side. And and what what those stations are trying to accomplish, and what the um, and also about content too, about what they're typically doing, and what the the distribution of the types of content on, in, in these stations is really all about, because it's local. So right. I'm just curious. I, I think one of the big things to keep in mind is that these uh, groups are in community institu- institution building. So they're building new anchor institutions in their neighborhoods. And they act like a magnet that 
pulls people in. So um, to me, in a sense, the terrestrial signal is almost secondary. It's like it activates the space, just to use a, you know, that kind of term. Um, it, it pulls in all these folks, and it also is a time-based art, if you will. So the show must go on. Something has to happen. Um, and yeah. it makes these uh, really creative, energetic community folks, uh, it, it, it makes them, you know, have to produce something. Um, and so it, it's, it's somewhat different than a dynamic with um, folks doing podcasts, um, unless they're doing podcasting in a community of people. So um, it also provides this community of folks to, to help folks work on their their craft. And it also gives some folks access to tools and training and equipment that they might not have access to otherwise. Mm -hmm. So does the so those, those are a few, um, those are just a, a few of the components I think that are important. And it's not to say you can't do that with an online radio station. One of the applicants here, hollow earth radio has been doing that for eight or nine years. It's just, um, and they have like 50 people who make radio, you know, every month at Hollow Earth Radio. And they have a robust online presence. They've been nominated for local awards. They get, you know, public agency grants. Um, they're an exciting community institution. But even they were um, interested in getting an LPFM for the digital inclusion component. They were finding people in their neighborhood who didn't have computers or Internet access, couldn't afford expensive data plans and such. Um so they wanted to also have an FM signal. So are they, so are most of the stations then doing NPR style content? Is there music? Is it, I, I'm just trying to get a handle mm. on what they're, what they're putting out over the air. What, what is the actual content? You know, as long as they're following FCC uh, regulations, when it comes to uh, language, they can do just about anything they want. There are some situations, um, well, so the FCC had a point system um, for the applicants at that stage where, um, say, there were four groups in a city that wanted the same frequency. Um, they each got points for things such as... Um, how long they'd been an organization. Um, would they commit to airing eight hours of local programming a day for the first three years? Um, so then they would get more points if they were willing to guarantee localism, essentially. Um, so those stations are required to do eight hours of local programming. But that can also be some playlist that someone puts together of, of national music. As long as they have all the royalty rights covered, um, they can do that. It just has to originate in the, the right. area where it's licensed. Hmm. But when it comes to NPR content, I mean, that's just, again, that gets that business model. If they can afford that, they can do that. Right. It's interesting. So are mostly stations then that are coming online, are they programmed or are they manned? I mean, that's, you know, is it a kind of a mix of both? Um, you know, th there are some stations that are doing automation at night. Um, there are some groups that... Um, uh, where producers do their audio at home and then send it in. Um, but a lot of them really prioritize butts in seats in the studio. Wow. Um, and doing that program right from the community space that they're creating. Hmm. Wow. Okay. 
it just, it, you know, the, the challenge with doing any type of, um, you know, you think about the statement that you made that they've, they've agreed to do eight hours of local programming a day. Sure. That's, uh, that's easier said than done. That, that could be, yeah. that could be a challenge. Uh, and also well, it's live programming too. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's live and not you, necessarily. Well, no, not, not necessarily. It can be pre no. pre-recorded. Okay. But yeah. but still, eight hours a day is a lot, and um, you know, in not only are they, you know, so sixty thousand dollars for the equipment stuff. That's just like a, that's a rounding error for what a budget would need to be to have, you know, to be able to do one of these low power FM stations. If you're going to be running content through, you know, this this is not a cheap endeavor. So you know, I'm sure they're going to. Right. The what, what is a typical budget? For you know, do you have any operational budget? You know, what what are people spending a year? Are they spending a million dollars, or are they, you know, what are they? What's what's their cost to operate? That's all based on what kind of organization they are and uh, the, what their priorities are. Uh, you know, a big variable would be the physical studio space. Um, can a group get that for free or very low cost? Um, one of the applicants here is on city uh, park property. Mm. Um, so they're going to be getting their studio for, I think, like a dollar a year. Wow. Um, but other groups, um, well, Hollow Earth Radio, they put together a month-long um, concert series every year. And through that, they're able to pull together the money. I think it's only like $12,000 a year for their storefront, um, their neighborhood storefront. So, um you know, you, it, it just depends on the resources of your organization. Um, so variable. But when it comes to content, what you're talking about um, here in Seattle, and I'm just um, I'm talking a lot about Seattle. That's where sure. I'm based. Even sure. though I, I work nationally, I try things out locally and then I <clears throat> share them out. Um, so in Seattle, our Seattle Public Library, uh, they have a lot of speakers come through. They're a large organization. They record those speakers. And we're talking with them about putting together broadcast releases um, that those folks can sign. And then the LPFMs can pull that content from a, a bank of local programming um, that's about their community still. Um, we have a civic space, Town Hall Seattle. They're interested in a similar thing. Um, and their lectures already run on um, some of our public stations, like our NPR station um, air some of that content. So you can imagine there, there can be a lot of content generated by the specific neighborhood station, and that's what they want to prioritize. But there's a lot of other like civic arts and culture programming generated in a town like Seattle, um, where, where there's just all these community institutions that are, that are, you know, behind the mission of these organizations and want to share their content. Gotcha. So I wanted to ask you kind of, as you look at the low power FM stations and what they're doing, um, how do you see uh, kind of like a correlation to what we've seen happen with like a K EXP type of thing? You know, like the music station that's in Seattle that's run by by, by the University of Washington partnership. I'm just kind of curious. Um, do you see um, like a K KEXP model being successful in the low power FM side as well? Is there I mean, is from a national basis as well as local? Can you see something so like that happening? When you're talking about a KXP model, what what part of their model are are you talking about? 
Well, it's the hybrid bet- between being uh, nationally successful from a streaming perspective um, mm-hmm. and, and then also being successful from a local uh, broadcast perspective. Just curious. Well, it, sure. Um, well, if you look at KXP right now, their biggest numbers are on YouTube. So um, they recently opened, I think it was like an $11 million facility at Seattle Center. Seattle yep. Center is the place where the Space Needle is for, for folks not too familiar with Seattle. Um, so their mission is about music discovery. And um, they've created this massive community space. Um, I, I really encourage folks to go check it out online. I'm sure they've got plenty of pictures, kxp.org. Um, uh, gosh, I could just go on about their facility there, but they've invested a lot of money in a TV studio and in a performance space. They've got a couple different performance spaces, actually, but but one's a, um, a, a, a really fancy recording studio. Um, but I, I think one of the things you're getting at is the way KXP has worked with um, all the talent in Seattle and the talent that comes through Seattle. And then they sure. have um, they have their mission about music discovery, but they also have real consistency in their brand and their identity and what they the kind of programming they put out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and any of these groups can can do that. It just depends on their resources and how savvy they, yep. are, they are online. But KXP started, um, well, they're now technically, I believe, owned by a Friends of KXP group, but they have a relationship okay. with the University of Washington. Yeah, but they started right. off in the communications building at um, the University of Washington, um, and uh, they couldn't be heard out of that building, something like even just, you know, 20, 25 years ago, something like that. Then they grew their power to reach Frat Row, which is just off campus. And then they were able to expand it so it reached more of the city. And that gave them even more of that, you know, sense of space. And they, they, you know, capitalized on just, you know, what's been going on artistically in this city. Um, And they just continued to hone their sound. Um, So a group like Hollow Earth Radio you know, they, they could do something like that. Um, they're already seen, um, you know, in some spaces as, as, um, like an even closer to the ground indie KXP, um, Mm -hmm. and folks at bigger stations do watch some of the talent that, um, like some of the content that comes out of hollow earth. Um, and then they can kind of move that up through the, the pipeline, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think what really I think what I'm getting at is how successful they have been in their their national reach with their podcasts and their live streaming, and sure. and trying to look at kind of low power FM, which is typically my perception is that it's really trying to cater to the local community, but um, are they going to feel pressure to build audience, and thus it's going to push them into creating content that maybe uh, straddles that line between uh, being local and national. Sure. You know, it's just so variable. It's based on the the mission of that, of each organization. But um, at the same time, you know, a lot of them are focused just on their neighborhood. Um, Mm -hmm. And gosh, there's just so many directions they can 
go in. Yeah. I think, yeah. you know, when you have even a small group of committed, savvy people, they, they can do anything they want, but a big part of it is, is community relevance, um, and how much visibility they can have in, in whatever community they choose to have it in. Well, you know, one thing I think is a maybe segue here talking about the, you know, tie in the podcasting space is that the challenge that podcasters have had, um, doing local is that, Mm -hmm. um, there's just not a big enough audience. It's just too, it's too micro. So, you know, the, if you have groups that are honing local content and, and building an audience, you know, broadcast wise, this, you know, I, I think there's huge opportunities down the road and maybe even now to take that uh, broadcast content that you're, you know, that they're spending time creating and yeah. then, you know, putting that in a digital feed that uh, will reach beyond the neighborhood um, right. and maybe to a whole region. So, Rob, I know that's kind of your, you know, you've been hoping for local for a long time, but it just never seems to have uh, materialized, right? Yeah, I think that that's that's the bigger question is, is could this be kind of the the leading edge of a movement towards more local local digital consumption um, using the podcast uh, distribution methodology and and uh, I see these low power FM stations have the opportunity to kind of lead that um, because I, I it just feels like that the culture of low power FM is very compatible with the culture of podcasting. Um, but yet this, this divide exists between local and national podcasting today is very national and multinational, um, right now, but it just feels like its future does involve a significant piece in the local side and low power FM is very focused on that. I don't know that I see commercial radio, um, uh, really leading that charge though they have the opportunity to do it, but it just, the culture of commercial radio just isn't that compatible with podcasting. But I, but I see these low power FM stations like the K K, you know, like the example that we just talked about the KEXP folks, um, as being more of the model of what Mm -hmm. could be successful. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think with KXP, an important part just to, to further overtly articulate this is that they are not only a radio station, They've, you know, added video, of course, but they're a vibrant local arts institution. And that's, that's something that I don't, you know, I don't really know of corporate radio stations that employ community driven folks. Well, okay, wait, that's unfair. I know plenty of people in commercial media who are community minded, but their institutions don't tend to, um, co-create community events down at a local art space. Right. They don't That's tend right. to, to broadcast from the block party. Um, they don't no. tend to take the risk to um, invite emerging artists into the studio and see what happens. You're probably not going to see something like what happens at Hollow Earth Radio where on a, a weekday night someone brings a pot of spaghetti down to the studio and they like a, a little dance party spontaneously erupts. You know, that's not uncommon in, in a. We, we lost her. She'll be back. Oh, yeah. And she was making such a good point. Yeah, too. she was. 
<laughs> it seems like it always happens, right? Like yeah, good old good old Skype, and she was on well, her think, cell phone. Yeah, I think if she holds her phone horizontal, I think I think we'll get a wide wide angle shot. <laughs> there we go. Oh, see again. Oh, we lost oh. her again. <laughs> yeah. I hope she's not doing this off off of her data plan. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, Todd, what's your thoughts on on what you've heard so far? Well, and, I, I, and I I'm just um, you know uh, with digital. Here she. Uh, they, all okay. Right. I think I have you again. We were, and you were on such a roll too. Rob and I were. <laughs> Rob was commenting on it. You know, I think the thing that uh, um, yeah, where I'm torn a little bit is that. Did they find that these organizations find that streaming and digital was not enough? Uh, I think there's something in there about how community coheres. You know, that's when you get back to this concept of this terrestrial signal acting like an anchor point in the community and a magnet. And it's gotten all these folks excited about community radio. So if you're going to go with the community radio model, which tends to be freeform and eclectic, um, there's there's something that's almost, you know, people use the word magical about terrestrial radio and how excited a community can get about it. Um, I've never seen this many people. And just like the number and then different kinds of people ages, walks of life, so excited about this freeform community-based media making. Um, and, and I, you know, I encourage organizations even before they get on the air to do on-demand content, independent of how they distribute it. I think they should be making content immediately. So one of our stations, uh, Rainier Valley radio, they've paired up with, um, a a local South End media organization, community media organization, the South Seattle Emerald and some other like civically engaged folks. And they have a podcast called the fifth estate. So that's recorded at Rainier Valley radio and then distributed. Um, I'm encouraging folks to not just originate their own on-demand content, but, you know, bring in community partners to let them use the space and, you know, become part of that community. So, you know, doing that before you even get on the air and then um, putting together your online stream, you know, just in real time and then start doing your archives two weeks back at a time, you know, just make sure you're okay with the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And at that point, you can have everything up and running and then just flip the switch to turn on the antenna when that's ready. So then you've already built up your community-based organization and you're going and there's all this churn and activity happening. Um, and the, and the, the FM frequency is, is just an additional distribution method and um, defines a sense of place. Um, uh, Rob, I think you might have the, the maps that give an example of just what the local stations uh, look like. Um, I can pull one up and and show you as well, but they um, they define a, you know just a set of neighborhoods. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah. again, when it comes to their business model, they're just going to have to make sure they're super relevant and do a mix of underwriting, individual giving, um, and uh, grants. And then they also do have an opportunity to have some earned revenue streams. So if they want to rent out their studios, um, have their engineers. 
uh, record folks or if they want to teach engineering or, you know, just journalism, you know, they, they can do those kinds of things as well. It's interesting. You know, I, I think that, uh, yeah, the thing I would, you know, I, I understand this, how this is working in Seattle because you have, uh, density of bodies and density of, uh, um, you know, you just have, uh, you know, a massive amount of people. But how is this now then let's go, let's talk about the rural side, you know, where my mom lives, there's a very small town. Um, you said that, you know, initially this was, you know, a lot of agricultural type groups and stuff was doing, is that what you mostly find in rural areas or? I I've seen several different, um, models for that. Um, there's a station, um, KPCN in Woodburn, Oregon that, um, got on the air 10 years ago. Actually, this month is their 10 year anniversary. Um, and, um, I'm really excited to go to that because in 2006, it, it was a radio barn raising in Woodburn that got me into low power FM. So that was an opportunity in the early 2000s, that, that earlier window. Um, and that's a farm worker community, and uh, they broadcast in Spanish, English, and then several indigenous languages, and they make it work. Um, I can tell you more about that, but uh, I just went to the Grassroots Radio Conference in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and that's a little, little town. It's got a little bit of, I'd say, an Austin feel about it, but it's it's a small resort town, and yeah. um they have this amazing studio. It's, um, it's in the front of a historic building, um, that will, uh, the, the owners of the building are also building out, um, a brewery and pizza restaurant behind the studio. Um, and that's just rad, but, but these are folks who are really involved in their, their arts and culture community, their musicians, and they've, they've gotten a lot of folks involved in making radio. And, um, that, that's another example. Um, so once you get an LPFM going, um, the costs are, are, are much smaller and right. you can make something work on such a smaller scale. So with this restaurant and brewery, they'll be able to float the money to buy, you know, a new, a, a new, whatever, you know, right. CD player right, right, in the right, studio right. if it breaks down. Yeah. So they use um, the, they use the business to, yeah. Or, yeah. That's cool. Um, Goldendale, Washington. That's a really good example. It's a impoverished rural community with a lot of challenges, but they were able to get a grant from Puget Sound Energy, the, the local utility that got them on the air. And, um, they work closely with the public library there. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, these, these stations, you know, they're, they're going to be pretty lucky in the first few years if they even have a, a station manager. Um, and I'm actually <laughs> encouraging them to prioritize a really good volunteer coordinator, project manager type, more right. than even a station manager <laughs> and certainly not a program director. Um, yeah, the, you need someone to, to have an eye on compliance, but, um, is, are most of these, yeah. are most of these groups, are they, you know, are, are they ranging from this, this, the sole person to, a, a, you know, a small group or. You know, what is the, you know, what's the head count? What's a typical head count for a low power FM station? Is it, I'm sure it's all over the map. 
You know, I heard, I'm trying to remember what the, the station was, um, you know, but they have like over a hundred, hundred and a half folks involved in their station wow. already. Um, oh gosh, it just, it just depends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hate I, to give you such an unclear answer. Well, I, 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 um, I, cause I'm just wondering if it's, you know, if there's a, a dude like me in Boise that is, uh, doing a low power FM and running it, uh, you know, out of his, you know, if it's, if, and of course that's what pirate was doing before, but you know, it, I just wonder if there's anyone out there that are just, you know, they're, you know, very, very tiny solo man groups. Um, it, it just curious. And I, 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 oh, sure. I put you on the spot on this, but, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think that kind of situation was more possible. Like that kind of thing happened in the early two thousands window. And, um, you know, folks just like individual people, like I heard of one, um, out on the Washington coast. Um, it was a, it was a guy who's just kind of a hobbyist and he wanted to play, you know, like, fifties uh, music or something like that. And he just, you know, kind of did that out. I think it like out of his, out of his basement. Right. But in this 2013 application window, um, low power FM advocates, um, worked with the FCC to come up with these, um, Community guidelines. Regulations that that really kind of force or prioritize applicants who would have semi-public spaces. Right, right. Um, you know, just even regulations. I think there's one about like having a telephone that that that's accessible. Things things like that. Um, yeah, this opportunity is really for organizations. So um, so did the frequencies basically get all gobbled up, or is there still opportunities for folks in other areas if they want to look into it to possibly do this at this point at this point there will not there's no additional low power fm window planned there are advocates in this space um that are uh like michelle bradley at recnet um that you can you can find her online she's advocating for lp 250 so low power fm 250 um so that could extend the reach of some of these existing but, groups. But it, let's, um, oh, but two hundred fifty watts is that what it would be? Right. But what if right. okay. what if there was in some town openings yep. in that frequency? Part of the two thousand thirteen initiative, could they still get in, or is that window closed? Closed. Closed. Wow. Closed. That's sad. Well, and uh, uh, an additionally sad thing <laughs> is that there's no national entity um that that really robustly funded the um the outreach um period for for this um an engineer had said there were like 11,000 frequencies available wow um but only like you know 2800 groups were able to apply um uh there were a lot of faith-based organizations <laughs> that were able to get out the 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 you know the application um makes sense opportunity um and they you know had funded engineers and um the the ability to get it done um quickly um uh, but a lot of these grassroots groups just kind of you know they were they were scrappy and uh there's there's a lot I have to say about how this gets funded at the national level. You know, when you're looking at structurally who's funding what, um, and you know, even it comes down to the mission of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. They recently 
tweaked their bylaws actually so they could funnel more money into digital, into podcasting. Um, but you can make an argument that actually low par FM is more in keeping with their original mission. Um, yeah. Makes but sense. that's, that's a big thing to, to, to go into with, um, and it, what it, their funding philosophy is right now. And I'm sure this low power 250 initiative probably has massive resistance by the license holders of their commercial folks. They don't want competition. So I'm sure they, they're resisting at all levels. Yeah. But can they actually resist it though? It, if it's, if it's being done as a, you know, as an FCC thing, I guess they, they can lobby, right? They can lobby their congressmen and things like that to try and stop it, right? Yeah. So the National Association of Broadcasters and NPR fought low power FM for for years. That's it, you know they basically delayed this opportunity for a decade, um, and that's just a really regrettable thing that that happened. Um, and, uh, but at this point I'm finding individuals within full power NPR stations to be incredibly supportive. They're, they're, they're massively supportive and want to partner with groups here in Seattle. Um, and at the national level, I've heard from NPR lobbyists, they, they're not really interested in fighting this anymore. Um, when it comes to NAB, they, they're certainly putting on their materials that they will protect members from, um, encroachment by low par FM. But again, the, the engineers working on this are professionals and they're skilled. They're, you know, they're working really carefully to make sure there's not actual interference. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll see how low par FM's doing in five years. You know, what does shift in the media landscape when you have 1500 new little anchor points, little communities of people making media and they're allowed to experiment one of the things, um, Rob, that you were talking about earlier um, reminded me that it's important to say that because listener numbers, just sheer numbers, um, these groups aren't exactly dependent on that for their business model and for selling advertising. It's more important that they're relevant in their communities. Um, again, like a community arts group that is sustainable because the community is behind it. Um, so you get to unlink, um, that program director, um, dynamic where that person needs to make decisions based on audience growth. Um, so with low power FM, you can broadcast in multiple languages and you don't have to worry about, um, your dominant audience only speaking English. Um, and so we're seeing that here with with you know shows in Amharic and um, there there's there there there's a Somali American station in Minneapolis um, I'm really excited about and you can read about them in in you know just do a Google search um, there there are a lot of opportunities here for really narrow programming <laughs> um, right. that that makes a a group more valuable in the community rather than less valuable. Like, a, you know, if this was happening at a NPR station or at, um, a, a corporate radio station. So are any of these stations, um, uh, doing a digital signal or is it all analog today? Um, you know, I have not heard of a station that's invested in the digital equipment. Okay. Um, it's more expensive, I'm sure. I, and I, I wouldn't be encouraging them to to do that. Um, okay. 
I think there's a big case against doing that. I think these groups should invest in their online presence and their streaming and podcasting and not worry about the, uh, the digital receivers. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't change my stance on that until I saw market research that shows that there's wide adoption there. But one thing this does bring up, Rob, for me at least, in this discussion yeah. so far, is there is an opportunity here for podcasters that are doing just podcasting that are, if they can, if, if their content aligns with um, with the community space or the community of Low Power FM, and if they have some in their communities to get involved and to yeah. bring their talent in and and create some local content, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting, uh, you know. So basically, you know, that we've got this, you know, huge, massive podcasting community, which some folks want to make the jump to broadcast. So this yeah. might. Uh, you know, might spell an opera. And I'm sure these stations are always, and you're not going to get paid. You're going to go in there as a volunteer, but, uh, you know, if it even means you're on at 8 PM on a Saturday, um, you you know, you, I'm sure these stations are looking for people to come in and create content. Yeah. And it's probably a lot like, it's probably a lot, you know, a lot like a public access show that you might do. Um, so it's the same type of thing I, I, I would think, but, uh, yeah, I think, uh, Though Sabrina, could you kind of give us a little bit of an idea? I know a lot of the, the 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 folks that are putting these stations together come from radio, right? Um, they don't. A lot of them don't have much of a background on the digital side. I I'm I'm assuming. Um, mm. Or is it if the opposite? If a podcaster came in there, they would need to think about their their show that they would do more from the radio side and less from a pure podcasting perspective, I, I, I would imagine. You know. Yeah. You know, I, um, you know, when looking at that, I think it's really interesting what PRX did with Radiotopia. So public radio exchange, um, mm-hmm. created their podcasting collective, um, Radiotopia so that, uh, they, they like threw together folks with, radio backgrounds with folks with podcasting only backgrounds. Uh, um, okay. And they, yeah. they learned a lot with that and they've been experimenting with, um, with funding models. So there's a lot there. Um, if you're interested, go, go dig into that. Um, when it comes to uh, who's doing what and their level of emphasis on online and on, you know, on podcasts, uh, you know, there's just all these different pockets of low power FM. Um, one thing Rob, that might be informing your question was, uh, the, the workshop schedule at the grassroots radio conference. Oh, okay. Right. Like, um, when I sent that to you, you commented, you know, there's not anyone looking at online here. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Um, that's, mm -hmm. that's been kind of my, why, why I wanted to reach out to you and reach out to this community was to, you know, you know, Todd and I, and there's a couple other folks in this, this space that, um, want to encourage and share best practices in the podcasting space. And, and we just see that the low power FM side is such an opportunity and so compatible with the medium that, that I think both of us would love to, to do what we can to, to help share, you know, the, the learnings that, 
have been gained over many years of this medium being in existence and then trying to combine that with the low-power low FM community and the the more public radio-oriented approach that exists right there. I think that there's a lot of very successful examples on how that can be done. Yeah, I think that the more we can... Um, I think the more that we can bridge these different communities, the better. I think the more that yeah. we think about this as an ecosystem, the better. Um, and, you know, we can talk a lot about how we got to this point where there are these, you know, these these silos between what's going on in these different um, areas that, that you're, you're talking about. Um, but I I'm always looking for folks who are um, looking at the bird's eye view of, of this as an ecosystem and folks who are interested in connecting these, these pockets of activity. You know, over the last 24 months, I've spent a lot of time. Well, not a lot of time. It's either stations get or stations don't. I've been talking to a lot of commercial uh, radio stations and we've onboarded uh, a lot of commercial that is um, some starting to make original content, some of some folks repurposing with instruction, uh, current content that they get. And, you know, the, you know, the case study I always like to share is the, um, you know, the, the, um, local, you know, community college or the local, um, high school football championship team or whatever, you right. know, those, those 10 minute interviews that traditional radio do, um, during morning drive, uh, make fantastic uh, local podcast and um, mm. and those uh, those radio stations are um, those that are listening are not just taking three hour drive and taking and making three uh, audio files and putting on as a podcast so what we you know and, and, and sometimes these stations get it sometimes they don't uh, sometimes they want to get it but they don't want to put the resources at it so I think low power FM would be like I can't imagine I, I'm sure the conversation would be completely the opposite. Be like, yes, let's do this. Let's go. Let's make this happen. Versus like, well, I'm going to have to budget to have a person, you know, these right. are, so I think Rob's right. I think there's huge opportunity for the content that's now being created in low power FM to be able to become viable content that could be, you know, and, and here's even something more exciting. So how many local low power FM stations do you have in Seattle? Uh, seven within the city limits and like 15 along I-5 in Western Washington. So what percentage of those are faith-based? I'm not currently working with any faith-based organizations. So there's 15 that are non-faith-based in the Seattle area? Yep. So just think about, Rob, think about this. Pool those 15 low power FM unique local content together and you have build a network and you have one kick ass local network yeah and, yeah. and you have to do it together see i'm just giving a huge business model away yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> sure but sure. still that's how that's how you crack the nut on this uh local content scheme that's definitely one way to do it um well it's, yeah, it's I, part I, of it yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and there are folks who are looking at that like throughout the Pacific Northwest. And, um, and, and there's a historic precedent of that with this, with a Northwest Community Radio Network. Um, 
something that's that's important to to um, a dynamic that I look out for is that I'm not being too prescriptive with groups. I try and identify models. I, I try and you know find exciting things that are happening and sharing them with other LPFMs. Um, trying to you know build relationships. But um, we haven't talked about this. But I'm part of the philanthropic work of Brown Paper Tickets, and I think it's really important that I approach like the 15 I'm working with as a cohort rather than a network. Right. Does that make sense? I, oh yeah. And and you know, they've been awesome. You know, we've talked about group underwriting sales and on sponsorship sales because, you know, obviously we've got a huge population in Seattle that's, that's, that advertisers want to reach. Yep. So, but I want to be really careful about how we go about that. So, um, I like, uh, making sure that they're, I'm giving lots of space and time for, uh, low power FM leaders to adopt these ideas and, you know, start putting them together. And when I see political will, I do what I can to su support that effort. Well, you know, Does that it, make sense? Yeah. And, and I think from my perspective, just so you understand where I'm coming from, is sure. that um, content co-ops, let's, let's, let's just use the word, not use the word network, let's use the word co-op. Content sure. co-ops could be force multipliers in that you take uh, a little content from every network and maybe the best of and mm -hmm. you put that together and what that really then does build is you could really you know it, it really allows you then it's rob and i were talking about cross promotion so you yeah. you know you've got this cross yeah. cross promotion uh, uh right. ability but at the same time because of the low power not everyone's going to be able to listen to all the stations in the city too so sure um so that but would be digital makes that possible. Right. Though. Digital. Yeah. Re removes that barrier. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I think uh, there's some interesting things we can learn about what's going on uh, within the NPR community. Um, that huge dynamic that they're struggling with, um, that the national brands, the national NPR shows are, you know, they're, they're making podcasts and, um, member stations are, are really concerned about how that can eat into their local donor base. So, so there's that. Um, but something that we've run into, like in the grassroots pockets of Lopar FM, uh, that comes down to, to platform. Um, you know, there's archive.org. Some groups have used that. There's radio for all. Um, public radio exchange was a marketplace, but then that's, that's, uh, you know, cost money to pull content down. And then Pacifica Radio has um, audio port, uh, but that's about $500 a year to, to become part of that. So if you're looking, you know, as we're trying to find what technology platform supports that content sharing, um, <laughs> and we haven't found yeah. one yet. So if you guys... <laughs> Um, can think about some non-proprietary open source platforms oh. that also still get maintained <laughs> and have robust technical support and are easy for community folks to navigate. I am all ears. Yeah, I don't know that those exist. <laughs> well, yeah, what, they don't really exist. <laughs> uh, the, the, open, the, the open source doesn't exist, but the commercial exists. So. Right. So, so, I mean, we just have this huge range <laughs> when it comes to resources of these organizations. Um, yeah. Well, you yeah. know, actually, I mean, on that topic, it's actually not expensive at all to, to host podcasts. Yeah, so, it's, it's inexpensive. Um, 
and especially with uh, these low power FM stations, they're not yeah going going to be pulling huge bandwidth numbers. Right. That's going to present an issue where it's going to be expensive for them to host their content. Right. So, right. Uh, I think the opportunity is there for very very low cost digital distribution for them. And I think there's um, opportunities for um, you know there are platforms to be able to to build networks and the actual commercial cost of those is, is not extraordinary. So especially when you're dealing with a, let's say it's, if it was a co-op situation where you had eight, nine, 10 people working together, the budget line would be very minimal. I know that their budgets are tight anyway, but it would, it would be a small budget line item. Yeah. I, I think, uh, coordination is a big part of this and, uh, you know, sorting out those, those platforms and figuring out how to point, people to them that that's part of the equation i'll send you an email to some stuff that actually i have so i would love that i'd love that well you know i mean todd's todd's got got a great plugin the powerpress plugin and probably many of these low power fm sites are are using wordpress probably for their websites yeah. um there's yeah. some so, pretty some... pretty non-functional things out there so are there okay so yeah <laughs> And, you know, the more I can point people to, to uh, tools that work, I, I'm so into that. So so please do reach out to me. I'm just Sabrina yeah. at brownpapertickets.com. If any of your, your viewers or listeners uh, want to reach out. Well, we are, believe it or not, we're, we're at 90 minutes, Rob. So... Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how that happens. It, it is, and Sabrina, I want to thank you for taking time to come on and get us. It makes you know, make I get the wheels of my head spinning. Um, so uh, anyway, very, very informative, and thank you for coming on and sharing. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate that. There's folks from um, your part of the podcast world that are interested in this, and you sound like you really get it. So I appreciate that. Yeah, we're geeks at heart, you know, so that's what it boils down to. And, you know, we're all about uh, creating content. And, you know, this is just, as I said in the beginning, Rob and I have, you know, I know Rob especially, uh, I, I can't take credit for this, but Rob has been, you know, you, Rob, you've been talking about this local content for a long time. And I've been like, eh, it's, it's, it isn't going to work if the, the audiences aren't big enough. But um, there is a way ahead, it looks like. Yeah. Think about audience. Could but be. It's I, also I just think like, it's you know, kind of a culture and community issue of uh, bridging this um, current divide that I think does exist between radio, just terrestrial radio, and digital and podcasting, uh, and trying to bring these communities together. And I know I I've expressed to Sabrina that I I want to get involved a little bit more in the um, the low power FM community. And be be a resource there, and I know Todd, you'd probably be very open to that as well. I'm it's sure Sabri knowing you, Sabrina, the next book, next meeting you guys have, where you all come together as a group there in Seattle, you guys need to bring Rob in and let him twist your ear a little bit. So, uh, well, I think that uh, based on this, I we could talk another two hours on this. But <laughs> we can. <laughs> I'm looking forward to keeping in contact with you, Rob and, and Todd. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. But everyone else, thanks for being here today on the new media show. We are uh, going to be back with you next Saturday again. I am. Uh, I will be home from Denver. And again, if you are in the Denver area and want to meet up, just drop me a line at geeknews at gmail.com or at geeknews on Twitter. Rob, what's the best way for them to reach you? 
Oh, just on 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 Twitter um, at Rob Greenley, and that's with two e's on the end, and um, you know robgreenley.com and uh, the Speaker Live Show that I do every Wednesday at three p.m. Pacific, six p.m. Eastern, where I talk about uh, podcasting topics. Sabrina, what Not is that? You- I don't do that here as well, but uh, <laughs> thank you, Sabrina, for joining us. Yeah, and Sabrina, do you have a Twitter account? I do. It's Brina B R I N A S E A Brina C. Brina C. All right, easy to remember. All right, everyone. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week on the new show. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay. Well, that was cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, YouTube. Bye bye. Facebook. See you next week.